One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Welcome to this episode of Medlib's Miscellany. We're on episode four. I'm your co-host, Carrie Price. And I'm Tracy Shields. And today we have a very special guest, Peter Johnson. Welcome, Peter. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're so glad you're here. In episode three, Tracy and I talked about how we became medical librarians. And today we'd like to talk to you and find out how you got into this field and some of your maybe tips and advice for new medical librarians. So thanks again for being here with us today. Of course. Yeah, it's um, all of our, listening to the last episode, I know all of our experiences going into the profession are kind of individual and how we've gotten there is sort of individualized. So I'm happy to share how I, how I blundered into this particular niche of librarianship. But yeah, it should be fun. Yeah. So how did you get into medical librarianship? So um, I, let's see here, we can, the, the short answer is um, I was a um, access services and e-resources libra- librarian for about three years, and then I um, started my current position in uh, March 2022. Currently, it's January 2023, so I've, I've only been here for less than a year, almost coming up around a year. The, the long sort of story is um, I started... Uh, just working in libraries in undergrad as a student in, in circulation, of course. I'm an access services or kid. Um, and then from there, sort of found my way. Oh, I, I think librarianship is is interesting. I, I kind of want to dive into a into a library science program and see what I can do. And then after that, it was about five years from <laughs> from when I graduated to finding of my first full time position. So I, I think. Throughout that time, it was sort of a consistent of wanting to help serve research needs, wanting to help serve information needs. And I think that the appeal for me for um, health sciences librarianship, medical librarianship, is that the need is so particular and so vital in the functionality we provide to, to patient care, to disease research, and everything in between. So did you plan on being a librarian, Peter? Um, not initially. It's probably something I should have considered more seriously. My mother is a, a full-time academic librarian and just about to retire, actually. But um, yeah, it, I didn't have an aversion to it or, or an attraction to it one way or the other. Um, when I was working in my undergrad library, uh, Pickler Memorial Library at Truman State University. The director was a very nice man named uh, Richard Coughlin, and he was, uh, was a transplant from Boston, you know, and he, he uh, ended up in Kirksville, Missouri. And um, he mentioned, um, I, I, I did a little committee work as, as a student representative um, for some work being done in the library. And on the committee, he mentioned that he had been a history major in undergrad, which was my major, and that he went into librarianship. And that kind of was like, huh, you can do that. Interesting. So um, that, I think, in combination with really just finding difficulty looking at options of where my undergrad degree was going to be applicable, I think, kind of pushed me into, well, 
you know, I, I might not have too much luck finding work with this particular degree. Um, maybe grad school would be a good option for this, especially if it's something that I, I think I might like to do. And, and then um, from there, you know, combination of study, combination of uh, student related jobs and roles, and then um, working afterwards. It's sort of been a little step up, step up every single time from part-time positions to student positions, to part-time staff positions, to full-time positions. And then, and then here it is. I'm curious if your mom had any advice for you coming into this field. I think in all honesty, she was surprised that it took as long as it did in finding a full-time position in my experience. I think she, so she started as a librarian, full-time librarian in um about 1990 or so and job right after school. In fact, it's it's the job she's retiring from. She got one job after grad school <laughs> and worked it for 30 years and that just that just doesn't happen anymore. Um I, I think her advice um was very particular to her experience and and that's really something I learned along the way is that when whenever you solicit advice for someone it's it's particular to how they came up and either in the time that they came up or in the way that they came up and there's value in that but there's only value insofar as it can be applicable to what you're doing and then where you're going um so everything with a grain of salt I think do you ever find that you use your history background or is it just kind of uh, the thing that got you eventually to where you're at? Uh, technically, have I, I have never used it to secure a job. You know, it, it, I think that's a primary motivation, you know, around higher ed. It's like, oh, it's signaling to, to for, for employment, at least part of it. I, in, insofar as that, it hasn't really been useful. I think the the program was very good and the methodology of how to examine a set of information and how to distill that and assess that has proved invaluable as far as being a librarian because we get so many different questions that are just all over the place and all different kinds of topic areas, even within, you know, health sciences, like, oh, where did that question come from? That's in <laughs> that's interesting. And having the ability to kind of intake that, think about that, and then articulate it back to someone, I think is, is, is the most valuable part of that degree for me. So I don't regret it. However, it's, it's, it's proved less useful, I think, than it, it, it had been in previous decades. How would you describe what you do to your friends who are maybe not librarians? I mean, do you read all day? That's the assumption, right? That we all read all day. We just read books. <laughs> Naturally, that's that. That's all I ever do. In fact, now our our the library I work in actually went through a rather significant weed several years ago, and so most of the the shelf space is is um, now the books have been moved to a depository. So it's it's by and large it's a it's a digital collection with a few remaining prints. Um, no, I, I describe it as I like to help people find things. And I think that that kind of clicks with them. Oh, you're good at, at knowing stuff and locating stuff. And that that kind of seems to reframe what people imagine librarians are, which is typically wildly inaccurate <laughs> to some degree. Right. I know when we chatted earlier this week, you talked about the importance of mentorship to you. What has mentorship meant to you in this field? 
Gosh, I've I've worked with a lot of different areas of librarianship and a lot of different supervisors in those areas, um, most of whom have, have been good, most. I, I think. Mentorship, though, <laughs> to me, it's, you know, it's... <laughs> we know. You know. There's always the, the small... Well, you know, people... People contribute things in different ways, right? You know, and sometimes it's it's in uh, overly positive ones. Sometimes you get kernels of, of positivity amongst everything. Um, I think mentorship to me is really anyone, not, not just a supervisor, but anyone you work with as a colleague or anyone you interact with, that they're, they're willing to um, let you be vulnerable around them and that they're willing to let you learn around them. Um, and I, you know, I, gosh, I had a, a supervisor at the university of Missouri. She, she was, um, very direct. Um, and I think a little intimidating sometimes, especially for the, the patrons. Uh, but, uh, but you know, she, she had a standing pledge. Oh, if you ever get into trouble, if you ever do something you shouldn't do while you're at the circ desk late at night, um, you know, I, I want to, I want to hear about it from you is the first thing, but then, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll back you up 100%. That was, was her pledge. And, and there was, I had a, a little, little story time. I had a, um, an instance where I checked something out where I shouldn't have, um, oops. And, you know, thought better of it afterwards and let her know, and she was like, okay, I'll take a look at it next day. You know, she gives me a phone call. Oh, no, what's what's going to happen? <laughs> and she says, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. Um, um, and she goes, so, you know, but the person, you know, they told you they were okay to check things out. I said, yes. And she goes, okay, I'm going to contact them and um, let them know that they have, after reviewing the information, that they have lied to an agent of the university and in my my view, they have stolen library property. And if they don't return it promptly, I'm going to call the police. And that <laughs> that was the kind of supervisor uh, she was. I don't think I would have made the same decisions as as the head of an access services division. But I, I think it was it was interesting to see how she interacted with people in some ways I wouldn't do, but also see what are the parts I would take away from that? You know, then another example is a, 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 um, not a direct supervisor, but someone who did supervise me, who I made a mistake in front of a patron. This was when I was a student, undergrad student, and she uh, dressed me down in front of the patron. Not a great feeling, right? And I always remembered that. And I thought, you know, I really didn't, that didn't feel good. I'm not going to, if I ever supervise students, I'm not going to do that to them. So I'm, I did have a chance to supervise some students in my previous position. And, you know, if there was ever anything that didn't go right, we, it was always a good learning opportunity. Okay. Let's talk about what we've done and, and, um, uh, what maybe could go better next time. And then, you know, we'll just move forward from there. That's a good approach. It's never good to dress someone down in front of others, especially, well, anywhere, <laughs> but not at work. <laughs> Yeah, I had a, a supervisor that always framed it as praise in public and consult in private. <laughs> because, you know, it, okay. like I think it, like what you pointed out, it's really important that that people have your back, that supervisors have your back, that they realize that as your supervisor, 
the buck stops with them, not necessarily you. And as long as you own up to a mistake, I think that can go a long way. And that's, that's one thing that I think in our field is really important to do amongst ourselves, but more importantly to do in front of patrons, which is say, when you don't know something, you know, own up to not having the answers and saying, I don't know that, but let me see if I can find the answer or I'm not comfortable doing that. Let me find somebody who is. And, you know, if you have the luxury of having somebody above you that you can go to, but more than that, having the awareness that there are things that patrons don't need to see and that are better handled in a different setting, that is that is really helpful. And that's really, that's a difficult thing to learn. And, um, you know, as I've gotten older, as I've gotten older and become like the more, I don't even want to say senior librarian because in my current place, I'm not senior to anybody because there isn't anybody to be senior to, but, you know, to, to be in a position where you could be a mentor to, to people, to colleagues or coworkers and to kind of have that attitude, I think is really important because most of us don't learn how to be mentors except by the experiences we have where we've had good ones or we've had bad ones or we've had good experiences or bad experiences. And hopefully we have enough self-awareness to be like, I don't want to be by like that person. So I'll do the opposite or try to do it differently, right? Because that's that's just not something that is that there really is in our profession, to my experience anyway, is any kind of formalized instruction on how to be a mentor and what makes a good mentor and how to mentor people at different levels, levels that you may be at, but also that the person you're, you're potentially mentoring is at. And one of the things you said earlier, Peter, is that that really struck me is how you may be a mentor without realizing you are one because so much of what happens can be informal. You know, it's the interactions you have with a colleague or a coworker or somebody you just interact with on a professional level on the internet. I mean, I consider people who probably had no idea they were a mentor to me to have be mentors from Twitter or other places. Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll, we can talk about this later, of course, but, you know, coming into this profession and trying to find ways to succeed in it and ways other people have succeeded in it, you know, both of you have, have been in, in ways mentors to me, just, you know, about, about learning about new topics, um, also how to approach complicated topics and the nuances involved in that. So, so thank you for, for that as well. And I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one who can say that either in our our corner of librarianship. Which is kind of terrifying when you think about it, though, right? <laughs> it's like ripples in a pond, right? right? You know, they, they kind of spread out and yeah. you don't don't ever quite know how much you, you mean to someone else necessarily, but maybe you do. Well, and that happens with patrons, too, right? Because we, especially with health sciences and medical librarianship, we don't know what might be behind some of the questions we get. It could be for 
a patient care thing. It could be for research. It could be very personal. And there's no way for us to know sometimes. And it, it can be quite harrowing to have some of those patron interactions because that's, you know, that's another thing you don't really get prepared for very well. And like, how do you prepare for that? It's within at least my experience in library school. And granted, it's, you know, it's coming on a over a decade old now. There, there was training about the theoretical and in some cases practical talk topic matters relevant to being a librarian in a professional sense you know how to conduct a reference interview how to approach collection development um, how to approach cataloging metadata but there there was sort of the lacking aspect around the the organizational culture and people centric ways that that we because we're a very people-centered profession ironically because everyone assumes we read all day but but i mean even those who are cataloging by themselves i mean they're they're building on the work of of other catalogers that are also working on the same thing so it it takes a, a great degree of communication and knowing how to successfully communicate with others and how do we, how do you apply for a job how do you be a supervisor? How do you be a mentor? These are, are things I think that all of us do to some degree. And there's no there's no structured formation around it, at least not in my experience. But No, it's challenging. It is. There's no one way to do it either, in fairness. So. And it can be very different depending on your environment too, right? Academic versus hospital-based versus corporate libraries. We may all kind of overlap in the services we provide, but the cultural milieu that we're in can have vastly different results in how we do those things. And if you are only familiar with kind of the the one track of, you know, being an academic librarian or being a corporate librarian or whatever it is, then you may not realize how it is for others and you know, how different our field can be, even though we are all kind of doing this similar things. The thread I often see is the good mentors out there are the ones who recognize and realize the the interconnectedness of, of what they do and how it impacts those around them and those who aren't or who who behave in ways that, that just don't result in a positive experience for anyone are those who are more disconnected and sometimes that's people with power and power does strange things to to others sometimes unfortunately that that illusion that they're separated from from others right but uh, sometimes it's it's just the whatever insecurities they're going through and how that's manifesting itself and how they're not able to connect with anyone else which is unfortunate but but yeah, the good ones are the ones who realize that connection, though. That's interesting. When I was at a medical library, we did not have a formal mentorship program, but I tried really hard to mentor newer people because people had mentored me, and it meant a lot. And then I moved to a public university where I'm the only health sciences librarian, and we have a formal mentor program, but it's so different because... I feel like I only know how to mentor health sciences people. <laughs> yeah. Not so it's been a learning experience. It's always a learning experience even for the mentor, I think. 
Do you, do either of you have an example that comes back to you about what a a, a great example of mentorship where that that really changed the trajectory of your career? I I, re- I remember the story of the the uh, head librarian that Carrie met in the bathroom. I think it was <laughs> in in the previous episode, but. She retired pretty quickly after I started there, but my peers at that at my first library job were just so generous with their time and knowledge. I could we worked in cubicles, so I could just pop in and ask a question about a search and I learned everything I knew from them and and we've all changed jobs by now, but I still learn from them because you know, you stay in touch. So I think it's nice to have a good network of people who are giving of their time and knowledge. That's important. And I think it often carries over from previous jobs. If you have good relationship with your coworkers, even if you end up somewhere else, people who have provided mentorship in the past often continue to provide mentorship wherever you end up. Because oftentimes you have developed a rapport with them that allows you to reach out to them and ask questions, just what it's like to be a librarian or a medical librarian. And I know in my case, there are people that helped train me in the very beginning when I was brand new to librarianship, who I still reach out to. And Now it's kind of more of a back and forth of not that we weren't colleagues before, but it's, it's more of a less a mentor mentee relationship and more of a real give and take on, on the same level. And it's, it's interesting because once you kind of have that built in, no matter where you end up, you can always kind of reach back out to them And again, you know, use the experiences that you had with them to kind of direct how you become that to somebody else. And like what Carrie mentioned, we tend to be a pretty giving bunch of sharing our time and experiences, whether formally or informally. And so I think that kind of attitude is, is easy to kind of built into the way we do our work. And makes for some natural mentorship that happens within our field, um, even if it's not formalized in any, you know, real structural way. Because, again, oftentimes there's not anything formalized. How many, there's probably more than one book published about being the accidental manager or the accidental leader, right? (laughs) And I think a lot of people who end up in leadership positions in our field often don't intend to have been leaders. And sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes that's not a good thing because there does need to be some formal structure and awareness of what it takes to be a good leader. And if that hasn't taken place, then that's how you can get some really less than ideal leaders. And kind of building on that, I think good leaders often keep in touch with what it's like to be on the kind of front lines of things, whether it's, you know, taking reference decks hours or doing a walk. I mean, even, even if it's just walking through and seeing what's going on at the circulation desk, 
during the busy parts of the day, have that awareness of what people are encountering and how people are using the library or interacting with patrons or, or whatever it might be. And it's a, I think it's a little easy when you get into the admin side of things to kind of forget some of that. And in some cases, you know, because of staffing issues, you can't stay involved in that because you're overwhelmed with being in a leadership position and having to deal with budgets. And that is one thing I don't ever want to do. And it's kind of a running joke in my current workplace that I, I don't want to do budgets. I don't, I don't want to know anything about budgets. Have you done budgets, Peter? I have contributed to um, a library budget process. I think my biggest contribution was uh, uh, database statistics. We, I mean, you know, it's counter five. It's 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 the worst of them, except for all the others. It's, it's nice that there is a standard, but what is the usage count? Who really knows? Let's sort of extrapolate what we can out of this database to make a usage set. Um, Budgeting I for just student had flashbacks. workers. <laughs> have, have, I, have I triggered Tracy? <laughs> just a little. <laughs> I think if I was fresh out of library school and looking for mentors, what I would recommend is just have a little bravery and just ask questions. You know, if, if you see librarians online talking about something um, or if there's someone near in a sphere you're working in and in, in your library and another library just ask questions and express a willingness to learn you know and sometimes the answer will be no or they'd love to but they don't have a time but sometimes the answer is is yes and and I, I would just advocate open yourself up to those opportunities if you can um, because the times that do they do say yes or the times you can glean some information at least are are highly beneficial so what have you found helpful for learning and training and things like that in those situations? The good news is there's really nothing new under the sun. If you're encountering a problem, someone else has probably had the same problem before. Um, mm-hmm. I, when I was preparing for my interview, I for, for my current position, I found um, a good video on uh showcasing PubMed. I forget the libguide I found it on, but but it, it was a, a library libguide. Um, and I was having to give a 20-minute demonstration on searching functionality within PubMed. And I remember a phrase they used in that video was, was about, um, oh, we have to be um, evidence aware within our search process. And I, I thought, oh, that's an interesting phrase I've never heard before. I'm going to use that in my presentation. Um, try to find reference resources, be they libguides, um, be, you know, sometimes uh, just a cursory Google search to start and seeing what else is out there, um, repositories of some kind, like a government website, um, perhaps, but also other, other um, open repositories that you can access. Sometimes I think you learn the most, though, in kind of doing the work and seeing what works for your particular situation. Just because you find a solution that's worked at another institution, you don't have the same staffing or the same institutional needs or even the same use case as them, and you have to adapt it anyway. So may as well just do a dry run and, and, and see if that works. There, The bad news is there's no one way to do any of this. The good news is there is no one way to do any of this, and so you... You sort of have to fit 
fit your your use case with what information and skill and care you have. So I was going to have to be a nerd moment because the evidence aware thing, I had to give a presentation this past week to nurse researchers on evidence-based practice and how to do the search for that. And I, I, li- I like the phrase evidence aware or evidence awareness because um, one of the things I talked about in telling them how to do the search is how important the search is, right? You, the search is everything. I mean, and I'm biased. I'm, I mean, that's my bread and butter, right? But you can't know what works or what doesn't work unless you have the evidence for it. And how do you find the evidence as you go looking for it? But then I, I, tr- I found myself kind of, go, unfortunately, going off script a little bit and saying, you know, there's not one search to rule them all. And I just totally, you know, pulled out the Lord of the Rings referenced on them. And it's like, you know, there's, there's not one search to rule them all. And, you know, I threw in database to bind them. And it was it was terrible. But the need to like, go out and find it yourself and adapt what you find to your needs, I think kind of really gets at to the heart of what we do as medical and health science librarians, because that's what we have to do in our daily work with ourselves, with our patrons, but also just the nature of what we do is having to do it that way. You know, constantly find, adapt, and reuse. Creative reuse. Without intellectual property violations. Of course not. Nothing has ever fallen off the back of a truck for me. No, I, I, it's one of my favorite parts about creating documentation is the little Easter eggs you can put in here and there, you know, if, um, you know, at whatever reference, you know, oh, I'm writing the thing. I can make this fun if I want to. Um, and, you know, my, my home Wi-Fi is one Wi-Fi to rule them all. So it's that, that, that example would have stuck for me. <laughs> I understand you're both into Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, I mean, I'm a f- I like Lord of the Rings, but I would not have said that I'm. A, it was just one of those things that all of a sudden my was coming out of my mouth before my brain caught up to what was coming out of my mouth, and I was like, "Oh no!" I hope somebody in this in this audience has a clue to what I'm talking about. I stopped making pop culture jokes when I realized I was way too old for the students. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I I had a a Russian history professor who. Um, in the middle of class, you know, it was showing a slide. It was a picture of a tank, like a Russian tank. Um, it must have been from the World War II era. And she, you know, in front of the class, she goes, oh. And she was she had, was from the UK. Um, and she goes, oh, it looks rather like a Dalek, doesn't it? And the whole class was like, you know about Doctor Who? And, <laughs> and you know, because this was post, you know, the new Who when it had started up and Tenet was the Doctor. And she was like, oh, yeah, I was I, I watched it when it premiered in, 19, in the 63. So yeah. <laughs> what is old becomes new again eventually. So. Peter, you mentioned finding a community and not being afraid to ask questions. And that reminded me of the first time we met. Do you remember? On Twitter. Yeah, I think I cold, cold, cold DM'd you, Carrie, as, as a... <laughs> Just slid into your DMs. Pretty much. No, I said, hi. So I've, I've gotten a lot of value out of your post. Thank you. Can you help me with something? <laughs> 
And without looking at your profile, I, I responded, I think it was about PubMed, and I, I thought you were a clinician yeah. and spoke to you the way that I might. <laughs> and then I saw you were a librarian. And not to say that I hope that I wasn't rude, but I, I thought you did not, you were not a super user of, say, PubMed, but it turns out that you were. And then we got to be friends from there. But what brought you to Twitter? I had had a Twitter news that on and off professionally for for a few years i never really found a good use case for it though i wasn't it never turned into my personal blog and um i appreciate the internet for dumb jokes that are you know not not mean-spirited and twitter has plenty of those but it was never it was never something that really stuck for me until i began my current position um and then i said oh i wonder if there are are online communities on Twitter, not just for librarianship, but medical librarianship, as it turns out, there was a hashtag. So that that helped. Um, And of course, naturally, I I started locating others who are involved in the community and and listening and, you know, getting a little braver and commenting on posts. And of course, perfect time to do it, of course, because Twitter has been entirely stable this year with no kind of disruption whatsoever. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, R.I.P. Twitter. Yeah, Medlibs. It's there's still posts on it. I mean, it hasn't it hasn't flamed out yet, but yeah, I use TweetDeck to follow those posts. I feel like I see a good amount, and I got on Twitter kind of the same way. I think I signed up for it years and years ago. Never looked at it. Never signed in, and then realized that one of the doctors I worked with was really present on Twitter, and I then I got on and started interacting with people. So it's funny how we do that. Tracy, when did you? I have a very odd Venn diagram with Twitter because I joined Twitter for more personal things and actually used it more for um, fanfics and the romance authors that I was following and then became more and more involved on the Medlibs hashtag so it is it is an odd timeline at times for me because those two don't seem to overlap a whole lot except when they do overlap it's kind of scary. Well, you know, archive archive of our own internet archive. There's some crossover there. Yeah. Knitting, romance stuff and medlibs. It all works together. I remember an interesting study about when e-readers were, you know, Kindles were first coming out, how it changed the readership. Um, for, for anyone who responded to the survey by gender and the readership for romance novels went up for men when they could read it on e-readers because there was no stigma around it. They could, they, they no who knows what they're reading, but they can, they can just enjoy what they want to enjoy, which is great. But it was just funny that, that um, of all the things, you know, sometimes technology is good, but <laughs> sometimes a billionaire buys Twitter and then it's less good. <laughs> so... Well, and don't quote me on this, but I am pretty sure I came across somebody's thesis or dissertation once uh, talking about how the reason Fifty Shades of Grey was such a huge hit was in part because of the timing with e-readers and the ability to have that, which there's some overlap with fanfic because that originated as fanfic back in the day, too. It was a Twilight fanfic, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a Twilight fanfic. (laughs) And uh, it was called Master of the Universe. And for some of us who read the original fanfic and then saw it become blow up into the the publishing juggernaut that it was for a time, 
it was pretty interesting to see. Can't imagine how the deselection process went for all the public libraries that bought dozens and dozens of copies of Shades of Grey. <laughs> how long did those stick around? <laughs> Some poor librarian somewhere had to, to weed all those copies out. Peter, what advice would you have for new librarians who might just be entering the field? Anything in particular? Some of it is dependent what area they're entering in, I think. If it's just someone who's, you know, freshly graduated, you don't have a job yet, um, I would say don't necessarily limit yourself to choices that your past self has made about what kind of role you want to have, what kind of librarian you want to be. If, if, if a job sounds interesting and just by its description, and, and for anyone still in library school, I would highly recommend scanning through job boards and seeing what kind of requirements some of those jobs have. A lot of it is best case scenario. So, you know, and think about the minimum requirements and sort of the essence of the job. Could you envision yourself enjoying that work or if if so, is there a way that maybe you can find a little slice of that work to get a taste of it? Is there a librarian doing that work you can talk to? Um, if you're applying for a job, it's it's so tricky. I think I think I ended up where I did through um, a vast combination of um, some of my own hard work, but also some of you know my privilege. I'm you know a white male, and that 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 feeds into it. A lot of it is due to the, you know, the help that I sought in preparing application materials and practicing from, um, from partners, from friends, from colleagues. Um, but then uh, another slice of it is just dumb luck. You know, sometimes you have the best application in the world, but someone else has a slightly better application for the particular position. And there's, you would be great for it, but they would, they're deemed to be a little better by the the foibles or whims of the the search committee and that's that's just how it is that's and you ha you kind of have to take your lumps and take your notes as you get them and move on and and that's hard that's it's it's if someone came to me and asked should I be a librarian today it would have to be a very caveated conversation and I would want to be open to them that their experience might not be mine but it's it can be highly highly competitive so if they've just entered in health sciences, um, I mean, I, I, I've learned so much from Carrie's videos. There are other information resources out there, but I think Carrie does a good job generally summarizing a topic and presenting it in a consumable way. It's not a 40 hour seminar on something. It's, Thanks. it's, 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 um, yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's very good. Um, so those are good resources. Um, the med, the med libs currently the med libs, you know, hashtag on Twitter is still live. You can follow that. There is now a Discord for medical librarians Yay. that they uh, any are, are are free to join. And I don't know. Maybe we can leave a, a link to that in the show notes. But um, but if if they're associated with a library or they they frequent a library that has medical librarians, you know, just send an email and ask. That's that's the other part of it too. I, I, I think. There might be some timidity or, oh, they'll yell at me for asking or something like that. But they might not have time, but they might say yes, too. I don't and, think they'll uh, ever yell at you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> Very rarely. So I've, I've kind of got a loaded question. Mm. You mentioned being a white male. That's how you identify. Our profession is predominantly white female. How have you found that to 
or may, maybe it hasn't impacted your experience in the field. But how do you how do you feel that that is impacted that the structure of the makeup of of medical librarianship? How do you think that has impacted your experience and how we can encourage folks to enter this field? I think within my experience, it has it has impacted it. I I once worked at a library where there were multiple reference librarians at the same desk. And I remember an interaction where a patron came up to one of my colleagues and, you know, adjunct librarian position, essentially. So, so you had to have the degree. So we were all librarians, but, but degree librarians, but we weren't full-time. The patron behaved in, uh, towards my colleague in a very rude manner. I found in very condescending manner. Um, and then they, when she, she couldn't answer the question. He turned to me, who had just been hearing all of this, and was suddenly just polite and, you know, very kind and like, oh, can you help me with this? And it, it was just such a, a stark reminder that, you know, I, j- just by my identity and how people perceive it and how people treat it, I have an enormous amount of privilege that I think I've benefited from within the within the profession. And of course I said, well, my colleague, you know, was absolutely correct. Um, this is, you know, something that, <laughs> that, that, that this is a limitation on our services and we won't be able to quite help with this today. But as she said, we can also do this instead. And, you know, it's, unfortunately that's sometimes a, a factor in dealing with, with, uh, with patrons or even professions that are predominantly say male or predominantly very privileged themselves, economically, perhaps privileged as, far as attracting new candidates to the profession, I think it's really a twofold problem. I think one of it is the systematic structure of what jobs are available, you know, and over time, as populations eligible, college eligible, eligible populations have changed in the United States, there are just fewer libraries, fewer colleges and universities and medical centers and, and government centers, perhaps, and subsequently fewer libraries or just fewer librarian positions. When someone retires, maybe they don't replace it, you know, even if... if um, so that's one issue. And, you know, you can talk about political advocacy and and um, really uh, advocating for state funding as well as federal funding of those institutions. But that's a different podcast, maybe. <laughs> um, I think on the other flip side of it, there is the reality that for these positions, we require, in effect, six years of education. And that's a cost. There's a, especially as as that state funding has decreased, and more institutions have to turn to their uh, students for that funding. They have to take out expensive loans and be saddled with an enormous amount of debt. And for a profession that requires six years of education, we certainly don't pay for a, a profession that a comparable master's in business or something. You know, it's um, uh, so. With those realities, it really limits the prospect of even if someone is working part time or full time in, in a in a position that doesn't require a library degree and they want to jump to something that has different responsibilities or higher pay scales um, and they need the degree, that's an enormous barrier of entry. So I do think there's a lot of benefit to the degree. Of course, I'm biased as are we all. We all three of us have have a ALA accredited degree. Um 
and I, I, I see a lot of value in having a shared formational process in our profession, but I do think as time goes on, it really warrants a strong conversation about alternatives. You know, is, is there a comparable certification that we should consider as a profession that could instill some of those foundational values without having the economic burden that keeps so many people out who don't have economic means at their disposal. I had no debt from undergrad because my parents had good jobs and were able to save and had economic privilege and very few people are in that position. Right. So, um, so I, I, I think that's an element of it. The, the, the finances, the cultural element, if you want people to come and occupy a space, they have to feel welcomed in the space. Right. And if, um, our culture is rather monolithic, um, especially within, you know, the say the run of the mill health sciences librarian or, or reference librarian. Um, you know, if, if someone is a person of color or is ESL or um, is is coming from another uh, diverse community, they're they're probably going to feel like an outsider in that community. So how how do we ingrain not just a um, a minimization of cultural differences, but how do we foster a wholehearted acceptance and embrace of how we can be diverse and different and what strengths those lend to our experiences. You know, my, I have a colleague currently who she completed her uh, master's in library science in India before she also completed it in the United States so she could work in both. And, and she has such a, a unique perspective on searching and research. I think that um, I certainly don't have, but I, I think it's is singular to, to her viewpoint from just just how she was raised and where she came from. So it's a long-winded answer. I don't think, I think it's something that either way, either within the profession or external to the profession, it's going to take a systematic reshifting and uh, a huge sh- systematic reshifting and change to how we work and function as a culture. I guess my follow-up question to that is, do you think there's a future for librarianship? I mean, there's, there's Google, right? There's AI. If, I mean, are we, are we a dying breed? Should there, I mean, master level education aside, which I think could be a whole multi-series podcast, but do you think there will always be a place for librarians? I think there will always be a need for one, certainly. I, I just had an interaction with a patron and, you know, they complimented me at the end by saying, oh, you helped more with my search in 30 minutes than I did on my own in two months. That felt good, but <laughs> to toot my own horn. But um, I think the need will always be there. Information in some sense will always be siloed. Good evidence-based research will always require an iterative approach and a translation of search strategies from different platforms. Um, you know, I, I don't see Elsevier merging with ProQuest anytime soon, for example. You know, I, I don't see PubMed going private anytime soon. So there are going to be, um, you know, God forbid, there are different platforms and now and there always will be. Now, the need will still be there is the recognition of the need. And how that needs to be filled still going to be there, I think, is the question. And in that sense, it part of it is, is it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. I think you 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 influence how others perceive you, and perception is so powerful. And really putting the point home: oh, you need a librarian for this search to be successful. 
But on the flip side, there are too many searches for a, for a librarian to be in every single one. So how can you advocate for yourself? I'm not entirely sure. I think that it will depend institution to institution um, and what they're able to afford and what kind of leadership there is in those institutions and how they advocate for their particular organizations. If you have a director who has a close relationship with, um, say, the university leadership or the org leadership, and they have an understanding of why librarians are important in the roles they're in, then yeah, I could see an argument that probably that, that org will remain healthy. But if you have the flip, if there's no one advocating for you, even within your own leadership structure, that's a big problem. And so I think it's an individualized experience. You've hit on some things that I that are really interesting and that I've thought about a lot over the years. For example, the MLS and an alternative certification. That's something that I've considered over time. Mm-hmm. It, it's something that I learned just from li- listening to those posting about libraries on Twitter, that there's a a large community of deeply dedicated but deeply dissatisfied um, uh, employees Mm. who work in libraries who can't get Mm. into those positions, and they're highly critical of existing power structures and existing um, structures of money um, within our profession, not just medical. I learned more from my two paraprofessional bosses than I could could have ever, you know what I mean, they, they knew just as much as anybody. Mm-hmm. We've touched, like Carrie said, we've touched on a lot of heavy topics. I think it's been a really great conversation. And I think it's a really important conversation to have, even if we don't have the answers to just bring it up. Because unless it gets talked about or addressed, it's never going to be solved, if it's even solv- solvable. But... Um, I have a really important question, Peter, and that is, how do you feel about crabs? <laughs> you know, there, there was a, a show my wife and I enjoyed when it was on called uh, Superstore. And there is an employee in the store who, whose husband comes in and he's grumpy one day, right? And um, so she says, next time you come in when you're grumpy, you need to wear a crab sweater. <laughs> to indicate to me that you're grumpy because I can't deal with this right now. And so it became our our joke whenever one of us is feeling a little grumpy, they joke, joke about having to wear the crab sweater. Um, I could not and cannot still believe that that, of all things, is the mesh-heading example in NLM's documentation. In some ways, I don't want it to change just because it's... It's so funny, and it's the in-joke now. But Of the tens of thousands of headings. What? It's still there. It's still there. I know. I checked yesterday. It's I know. still there. It's still well, there. Just as long as you know how to use oh, crabs God. as a mesh term. That's all you need to know. It's not even a mesh <laughs> term. That's just it, though. It's not even a mesh term. Mm, really underscores the attention to detail. I, you know, I wonder if it's one of those things you put in the test, anyone, you know, or the terms of service, anyone who reads this and, you know, messages this email address gets $500 <laughs> or something like, do we, do, does Tracy win a prize for, for having found this in the, in the documentation because she mm. read it close enough? Just the fact that I have the documentation and I have read it is probably a whole other new level of sad. 
Are there any things that you want to talk about, Peter, that we haven't covered? Since you have the opportunity, you have a platform <laughs> of like our podcast that has all of like six people listening to it. It's the hottest podcast in the medical librarian space, I have to say. Um, it's no. the hottest one in we Norway. We were ranked yeah. 181 <laughs> in what, Norway? Was it Norway or I Sweden? I think so. One of the Nordic countries. Cool. We were ranked 181 in the um, education section. We're making big. Means. We're making big steps. How do you, both of you? How do you prepare for a consultation with a patron? Do you have a, a standard way you prepare? Do you do research? Do you do homework? Or do you do you just kind of launch into it? So that's a really interesting question because it depends on if you have time to prepare before a consultation. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much it works with y'all, but most of my consults are not scheduled. They are phone calls or emails that come in or even walk-ins asking for search help. Mm. And so I often don't have the luxury of having prep time for consultations. So I have, out of necessity, developed how to do things on the fly or without, without a whole lot of background, which causes you to rely on, you know, fall back on things like reference interview, things like that. But you have to be ready kind of out of nowhere to be able to help somebody, whether it's, it's a quick consult or if it's kind of an introductory consult that can then become something more structured over time and um, asynchronous or synchronous or not. It can be really challenging because sometimes they'll just come out of the blue and they're like, well, you know, especially in my environment, in a hospital-based environment, I'll have a resident that says, I had a break in clinic and I have 30 minutes. Can you show me how to do a search? Or I need to talk to you on how to do a search. And I'm just like, okay, sure. <sighs> this this is going to be interesting. And you know it's not Gonna, nothing's going to stick because even as they're sitting there at the reference desk or in my office getting assistance, you know, they're being paged and the resident is, you know, checking their page and half only half listening and, and paying attention if you're lucky. So uh, search consults can be pretty harrowing and I, I don't really have a whole lot of opportunity to prepare for them like I would like to. Mm-hmm. In those situations, how does how does on the fly work? So, like I said, I do fall back on reference interview a lot. But what usually ends up happening is when I start asking them questions, you often get that deer in a headlights look mm -hmm. because you're asking them questions they didn't they hadn't thought of. And so that's usually when it starts to transition to here's kind of introductory things. Go back, think about the things I've asked you about, and we can go we can meet up again at a later time, in which case, usually the second time I will have been able to prepare a little bit because I now know their topic. This is one of those things where after years and years of searching, it becomes really helpful to have kind of a vague understanding of a large variety of topic areas and questions because you've pro I've probably 
been around long enough that I've had similar questions or can relate to the question in some way. So if somebody, God help them if they come in saying they want to do a systematic review because I, I have a little packet I have put together that I hand over and I was like, <laughs> no, you actually probably don't want to do a systematic review. Review these things and get back to me. If you still, after reading these things, want to do a systematic review, then we can negotiate something, right? But Smart. oftentimes what they're really asking for is a mediated lit search to help them with a research project or to write up a case report or whatever it might be. Or if it's a patient care question, then it's something I can show them and you know maybe do something right there with PubMed. But it, it oftentimes just becomes a matter of just the sheer volume of searching that I've done and the number of questions I've had over the years can kind of guide them where they need to go and show them some very basic things that can help them with a search. Yeah, and I, I get a good mix of on the fly and, uh, well, student and faculty. So speaking to, say, systematic reviews or literature reviews, I started to come up with some pretty standard questions. So tell me about your topic. Do you have any key articles? Uh, what's your timeline? Do you have a protocol? What are your inclusion and exclusion criteria? And what citation management program will you be using? Those kinds of things. So that got pretty standard. And then with students, it's more of a tell me about your topic and what kind of help, what kinds of help you need. So that gives them a chance to talk. And then it's the mediated search. Do you want to do the searching or do you want to watch me try to find some things for you? I do like searching on the fly, so it doesn't scare me to do that with mm -hmm. people. And it does give me the opportunity to ask questions. So one of my favorite things, especially in systematic reviews, is being able to search on the fly and say, is this what you're looking for or am I totally off base? Yeah, and I've kind of started to move away from doing demos like that on the fly to give them a few things because I got burnt by doing that. I discovered that one of my demos, here's a couple of things to help get you started, ended up being published as a systematic review. Mm. And it was never presented to me that it was mm. going to be a systematic review. It was, hey, can you help me find, I have this topic and I want to learn how to to do searches and, you know, make better use of the library. It's like, okay, sure. Yeah. I'm happy to do that. You know, sit down, we can go, let me show you a few things in PubMed. And as it turns out, I, I showed them a search and because it was on the fly, I had a typo and it was a pretty common typo for this particular topic. And I, and I don't, I don't, don't want to talk about the topic specifically because it's a very specific thing and it would be very easy to find the systematic review once mm. you know the topic. Mm -hmm. The spelling error was egregious enough that it was missing a whole bunch of literature. And it was it would be something I would definitely catch if I had more than 15 minutes to look at it. Yeah. And um, and I think it was a did you mean and Google changed the, the spelling oh, yeah. a little bit. Yeah. It does do that. And it dramatically changed the topic. And yet nobody at anywhere along the way for this systematic review caught the spelling error in the search strategy, which was published, by the way. It was like a very nice publication um, that actually published this, the full search strategy. And I was like, oh, no. They were kind enough to acknowledge me, too. And I was like, oh, no. I guard the search documentation. I don't hand it over. I don't, And I don't like to rush. 
But I've definitely made mistakes just like that, Tracy. So yeah, don't and it's yourself. and it's just one of those things where you know it's it's such such a normal part of our job, right? To have somebody come up to the reference desk and say, "I just need you know help to get started on this thing. I'm interested in this topic." And you're like, "Yeah, no problem. That's what I do. Let me show you a few things." You go off and you touch base with me once you kind of get an idea and we can we can take it a step further or whatever and I never heard back from him which is not unusual either because you know people get busy and I'm a little more careful now even when I do things on the fly I will always send an email to them um, with my name documenting the search so it's a little little more structured even even when it's on demand like that sort of accidentally created a paper town for yourself I guess within the Mm -hmm. search strategy I wonder if that's ever a part of a prescribed search process for any any library and they want to be sure they know if their search ends up somewhere so they purposely put a term in that's that's misspelled mm-hmm. or something so there's a little little flag a hopefully hopefully not because that that indicates there's there's a wide level of oh i don't hmm. know how someone's going to use this but i don't i don't do that mm-hmm. but i can usually tell my searches from other people's yeah. searches yeah. I think we all have our, our own ways of how we structure the search and how we document it. I actually wanted to go back this week and read Amanda Ross White's article about the labor of searching because mm. I've had a couple of things lately where I think the perception is that I can turn this around in a couple of hours and it's not that's not true at all. I mm-hmm. wanted to talk about or read about or think about what it really means. It, there's a lot that goes into it. I reread her article probably on a monthly basis. Oh. That is not even an exaggeration because it is such a fantastic article that talks about search as a verb, the invisible labor behind it. And she frames it within a systematic review setting, but I, I think it's very much true regardless of the type of searches it is, just how much of our work is invisible. Mm-hmm. As I work to improve my current institution's lib guides, if there is one that I'm pulling from significantly as, oh, this is really good and it's really straightforward, I can't really think how to better simplify this and I'm just pulling from it. If at all possible, I try to email, even if it, even though it's under CC, I try to email the library mm-hmm. and say, hey, is it okay if I use this and I, I you know, point a link back to you and, and just as a, as a courtesy because... I know that happens too. Speaking of, mm-hmm. of undocumented labor, those guides, there's no authorship on them, even you know, aside from the profile. And those mm-hmm. those can change. I my previous institution, I cre- I created all of the lib guides, and my name's not on any of it. That's yeah, that's, that, but that that's, happens. That's just how it goes, you know. But right. um, yeah. I get that a lot of people ask if they can share my YouTube chat, my YouTube videos. I'm like, they're on YouTube. Go for it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, but yeah, you have the Just authorship. Don't repackage them. Yeah, and you have the CC, you know, right up on the video. So I mean, it's it, it would be kind of hard to 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 strip that out. Yeah. Too. So it's, it's you need tech skills beyond what I've got to steal that. But eh, um, well, it also goes back to just what we do as a profession. We're helping mm-hmm. people, right? Yeah. It seems kind of wrong to all of a sudden be like, no, you can't use my it's mine. It's my yeah. it's my precious. See, I did it. Reference of knowledge. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Peter, it's been so good to chat with you. It's been a good conversation, I think. We've covered a lot of things. I've taken notes of a few things. Oh, right. A few topics that I think we need to cover in the future that we might have you come back and talk about, too. 
I, I, yeah, I if, probably if will not back. be an expert on all of them, but I'd be happy to speak to what I actually know. <laughs> but yeah. Is anybody really an expert, though? Eh, we're, all, we're always learning, right? We're all just passing through, but... Yeah, I like that. Peter, how can people reach out to you? I think my most accessible social media, my Twitter account is still live. I haven't deleted the app yet. So that, and that is uh, uh, Library Vines at Twitter. And then I am also a little more active on uh, Mastodon now. So it's just the same handle at Library Vines at mindly.social. And I've left those in the show notes so others can find them if they're interested. This podcast was produced by myself and Tracy Shields, audio edited by myself, with show notes by Tracy Shields, and transcriptions by Jen Monin. Find us on Twitter at medlibs underscore miss, M-I-S-C, or email us at medlibsmiscellany at gmail.com. You can find Tracy on Twitter at TC Shields. You can find me, Carrie, on Twitter at CarriePrice78. Our theme music is Nerdy and Quirky by Music Town on Pixabay. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Everybody say bye. Okay. Bye. 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 <laughs>